0: Hello and welcome to episode 136 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. This special episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast features Hamza Ahmad interviewing Anis Bawarshi as a part of the 2022-2023 TBR Podcast Fellowship. You will hear more from Hamza and Anis in a bit. When I started the Big Rhetorical Podcast, the goal was to expand the field via a new digital genre through conversations with graduate students. Over time, motivations and values have changed, but the bedrock goal of the Big Rhetorical Podcast has remained the same, create opportunities for graduate students. In pursuit of that goal, each year, TBR Podcast selects a TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award winner and a TBR Fellow. The TBR Emerging Scholar Award comes with a financial prize, and the TBR Fellowship is a paid opportunity to gain practical experience working on a digital project in the field, this podcast, and to connect with other leading scholars through interviews. This year, the podcast expanded to work with undergraduate students, too, through community partnerships and internships with students at Utah State University and York University in Toronto. We are excited to engage in internship programs in the future, and we are excited to continue to award the TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award and the TBR Podcast Fellowship. Annually, But the truth is, we need your help to continue to do this work. Each spring, I run an online fundraiser connected to my nonprofit organization and raise money for these opportunities. It's that time of year again, and we need your help. Please visit our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com and click on the 2023 TBR podcast fundraiser icon to give to our campaign. $5, $25, $100, any amount would be helpful. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet and find a link to our campaign pinned to our page. Additionally, you can find information about our fundraising campaign on our Facebook page and new this year, our TikTok page, which you can follow our TikTok page at the Big Rhetorical Podcast on TikTok. The campaign runs throughout the month of May to coincide with the 2022-2023 TBR Fellow Interview. Thank you all so much for your support over the years and your continued support this year during the 2023 TBR fundraising campaign. Hamza Amat is a Ph.D. student in the University of Washington's English department. Hamza is currently working on two different projects, a language ecology of a Brooklyn Walgreens, specifically the intersection of racial linguistics and translingualism in that space, and Afro-Asian solidarities in the works of the great Urdu writer Sadat Hasan Manto. On a rainy Seattle day, Hamza loves re-watching his favorite films. On a sunny day, you'll find him taking in the fresh air on his bike to the beach. Hamza is the 2022 2023 TBR Fellow. Dr. Anise Bawarshi is Professor, Chair, and Thomas L. and Margot G. Wickoff Endowed Professor at the University of Washington. Their impact on the field is profound, including publications of books, edited collections, book chapters, articles, and essays. Among their books is Genre, an Introduction to History, Theory, Research, and Pedagogy from 2010. Two recent co-authored book chapters include Anti-Racist Translingual Praxis in Writing Ecologies, in Writing Across Difference, Theory and Intervention from Utah State University Press, and The Work of Mobility in mobility work in composition, translation, migration, transformation from Utah State University Press, University of Colorado Press. This is an incredible moment. I hope you enjoy Hamza's interview with Dr.
1: Anis Bawarshi. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Anis Bawarshi on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Anis, it's a joy to have you. If you could just do a quick introduction, um, your name, your title, and your institution, that would be lovely.
2: Of course. Thank you, Hamza, for inviting me to be part of this. It's great to be in this space with you. My name is Anis Bawarshi. Um, I'm a professor of English at the University of Washington in Seattle. I am currently the department chair of English, but uh, before that and after that, I am a professor of rhetoric and composition uh, in the department. My work is on genre theory, invention, um, knowledge transfer, public rhetoric, and, uh, yeah, I've been at the University of Washington for 24 years.
1: What brought you to the University of Washington? (laughs)
2: um well they had a position open in my field at the time this was in 1999 and um my family my i was born in beirut lebanon my family is um um from lebanon by way of uh, palestine where my parents were both born and um then they they when they left uh, lebanon in the civil war Uh, we immigrated to Los Angeles and so the west coast kind of has been where um, home has been for me and my wife so when there was a job on the west coast um, I thought that's where I want to be and um, so yeah I I love being near water and that was a big part of it as well.
1: I've heard a little bit about your your love affair with water (laughs) I've seen that picture in in your office as well where Uh it's it's Uh, Is it you on the water? Yes. Oh, no, that's lovely. Um, So for the graduate students uh, who are listening to us, did you find this job immediately after graduating? Did you spend some time looking for jobs? Because, I mean, you're you're a really established scholar in the field, and it would be lovely to hear sort of a little bit more about your path to the institution that you ended up at.
2: Yes. um, I was very fortunate because I... This was the job I got right out of graduate school, and I've kept it um and I know most people end up uh moving a couple of times, but i um uh so so you know i I was finishing graduate school and I applied everywhere I applied to sixty schools and um I was obsessed I mean, part of part of my obsession with getting a job was because I wanted to prove to my parents that I made the right decision. <laughs> because if you're Lebanese, you know, you're you're either going to be a lawyer or you're going to be um, a doctor, a medical doctor, um, or go into some kind of business. And I was doing none of these things. And as the oldest um, uh, child in my family, when I chose the career to go into English and academia, that was that, that was a that was a hard thing for my parents. You know, they sacrificed a lot to get us here. And they so to make them um to make them feel like they had they could save some face with their with their friends, uh, I said, I'm gonna get a PhD. And to be honest with you, I think that was I said, well at least that will um will be a source of pride for them, and that, that's sort of the thought, so I'll just, but then, you know, of course, I fell in love with the field, and uh, so I just needed to get a job to kind of prove that I had chosen the right thing, so I applied everywhere, and I would have taken any job. I applied to um, to two-year colleges, to four-year teaching colleges, to research ones, and uh and actually, I thought I would end up at a teaching school because that's what I love to do the most and what I had had the most success with. But interestingly, uh, the schools that were most interested in me were, were, were research schools. And um, so I was very fortunate. I had, um, I had about, I think, th- three or four offers. You know, This was a different time. <laughs> um, there were much more jobs. I mean, composition and rhetoric was just really expanding. <laughs> and uh so i i um I ended up coming here mainly because again lo- location and um and um proximity to family um and so and those have kept me here despite all the ups and downs of all the things that happen in institutions that <laughs> you know.
1: that is really wonderful I mean it's wonderful to hear sort of that indeterminate path that that became sort of more and more determinate yeah. could there have been have could have, could have, could there have been an a niece who was maybe a businessman somewhere?
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, that was not cut out for me. I mean, the funny thing is, the alternative career would have been a mechanic.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that would explain some things because you're really, you're really fascinated by how things function in relationship mm. to other things. Right. Is what I've noticed <clears throat> about you yes. in the time that I have worked with you.
2: Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what I, what I think, what uh, the, the I think a lot of times what we do comes down to being problem solving and identifying problems or reimagining what a problem is, you know, and and then thinking about alternative solutions to it. But I think one of the underlying values that I have, maybe more than values, is like a disposition, is that I'm interested in how things work, how they're held together, and when they are not... Working, in in the sense that we may have of them, they're you know, like um, not working. Uh, rather than assuming there is a um, flaw in their design, or or well, something's wrong with this thing because it's not working in the way I want it to work, or it's not working to meet my needs. I am somebody who just. I think this comes from. My kind of Palestinian indigenous uh, life world that I grew up, where you have a respect for everything around you, not just your your ancestors, your elders, but even to the land and the trees and and to everyday objects, you know, what nowadays people call new materialism, mm-hmm. but indigenous communities have understood as part of their knowledge making for centuries. Uh, um, is the idea that you know if something is not working to meet my needs, you know I need to take the time to understand what it's trying to do and then to listen to it and then to know what it's trying to tell me and then to figure out how do I give live in good relationship with it on its terms and not only because it's meeting my needs or meeting not my needs, you know. Mm-hmm. So so, being a mechanic, what attracts me to that is you know it's the ultimate challenge um, of learning to listen to something that is not communicating in your language um, or your your semiotic systems. you know it's it's making certain noises, and uh, it's trying to tell you something, and how do you listen to it and then diagnose what's going on and then figure out how to how to um how to uh, to make it do what 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 you know what it what needs to do and what 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 you need it to do, so I like that I like that work a lot and I that's probably what I've been not a business person I'm I, that would be terrible for me the the idea of getting people to um, do things you know to get them to do things to buy things from you um, that would not have been my I would have been guilt ridden constantly that I've taken advantage of someone.
1: I, I definitely see that in, in sort of how you how you treat students. And I, I really do want to get, get to sort of your philosophy of mentorship. But before that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your research trajectory. Because, you know, going from this possibility of being a mechanic to genre theory. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about that. I've
2: never quite put those two things together. Okay, let's see where that goes. Um, well, I think... Um, what initially attracted me to genre theory was that it was in a way to understand um, and complicate agency. Um, I was very attracted to the idea that genres um, are actants in some way, that genres exert force on our rhetorical trajectories. And... Um, you know, to this day, I sort of think the simplest understanding of genres is that genres guide uh, r- rhetorical energy in certain directions, <laughs> um, and um, and so in that sense, I was very interested. I mean, I it was sort of so mind opening at the time to think about um, how it is that genres that exist within within cultures or communities um, have become established ways of 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 knowing and acting and being and relating to one another. And therefore to study that and, and, and then and that genres do all this in a way that is so normalized that it becomes invisible. And so I've always been interested in the structures that make things possible. And likewise not possible or difficult or um um, or if not difficult, at least extremely laborious to the point where it exhausts people into succumbing. Um, and so in that sense, I thought, you know, I think genres are these um, these engines, these mecha- you know, these sort of uh, the social mechanics, um, um, I'm now putting words into trying to connect it to the. but so I was interested in like, you know how do genres work on us, and how do we work on them, and how do we exist in in uh, better relations to the the systems by which we articulate ourselves? Um, so initially, I ascribed to genres a great deal of agency. Um, in fact, some of my early work, um, overdid it uh, in retrospect. Where to sort of say the genres, um, the genres are what causes us to do things, and I understand that better now. We can maybe talk a little bit more about that. But initially, I was just interested in the way that um, genres exerted an agency on our actions, and I wanted to study um, the mechanics of that agency, that uh, so that we became more critically aware of of um, what was possible that they made possible what they permitted and how to push back on those to make other kinds of <clears throat> uh, things possible so i think in, in in looking at it in terms of the, how that connects to my interest in mechanics i suppose it's um i'm fascinated by how things work um, when something breaks at home, I get excited because it's a chance for me to, to take it apart and look inside. And um, and then it starts a journey of, um, of, uh, of kind of learning, whether it be like how electrical system works or the plumbing. Um, and then I become obsessed, you know, like we had a problem with our sewer line and I started learning about where the line Traveled under the house uh, because when people would come and when you bring in the experts to help you understand what is wrong, like I'll often I just cancel all my meetings. I want to be there watching them, not because I want to watch over their work, but because I'm going to get to learn how something that I don't does not I don't see working is working. Like how does the electrical current move through our house? What happens to water when it's draining, and where does it go? And so. As a result of that, I can tell you now exactly where all the pipes are going, where in the yard the sewer line is going to meet the the main sewer line in the street and so I'm interested in looking at the under the undercover, you know, the the undercurrent, the infrastructure, the architecture of things and how they work, um, that we're not aware of, but they guide our actions every day, like how I live, how I act, what I do in our house is in relationship to all this infrastructure, most of which I don't know how it works. But it's exerting an influence on what I do, where I walk, the path I take to do certain things. So that's the connection, I think, and the genres were very much like about that, like paying attention to the things that we don't get to see, but they're doing things
1: they're doing things, which you said uh, a few seconds ago, a few minutes ago, that initially you assumed that they were doing a lot more and that mm-hmm. the subject was unable to do a lot more because of the influence of genres. And yeah. you, you mentioned that your thinking on this had changed. Tell, tell me a little bit about that sort of change in your thinking there.
2: Yeah. Now, thank you for following this. You're really good at this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, early on, I think... And this is not just uh, my own um, development, but my development alongside other scholars who were beginning to uh, um, to think about these questions together. Um, so an important part of my thinking um, was shaped by the work of um, Anne Friedman, who, um, who is this brilliant... Australian scholar of uh, semiotics. She studies Charles Peirce, but she happened to um, be invited to a conference on genre theory. Uh, I think this was the one that happened, oh, I think it was before the one in Vancouver. Uh, I forget where, but it resulted in that collection, Genre and the New Rhetoric. And uh, she's not a genre scholar. She's not even in rhetorician that much. But she came in and just sort of gave this gift to the field that it took people a long time to kind of recognize what a gift it was. And she introduced the idea of uptake to genre theory. And that first piece was called um, Anyone for Tennis. Um, and, um, And so in it, you know she's describing how uh from East speech act theory uh uptake refers to how a um an utterance um you know an elocution becomes perlocution and has a and has an effect in the world and and what are the series of transactions and translations that occur when you're going from an utterance to an to an action um you know the famous example being if it's saying it's hot in here and then you, Hamza, goes and opens a window, right? There was a series of translations that occurred that have to do with um, um, multiples of things. One, you're—and, you know, Austin refers to these as felicity conditions, uh, the conditions that enable interpretation to happen, the the optimal conditions, right? Um— So in this particular case, the room should feel hot. Um, If the room does not feel hot, and in fact it's cold, and I say it's hot in here, and you open a window, um, you've clearly misunderstood that what I mean is about the mood. It's like things are getting tense. So the felicity conditions, like, you know, it has to be hot. You also need to be in a position to be able to open the window, Uh, meaning that you have a certain authority, permission to open a window. Is it your office? Is there a window to open? Then there's also the the material conditions. Can you reach that window? Are you able to open it? Um, So all of these things are affecting an uptake. And what I became really interested in is uptake as a site of transaction, uh, where a series of things have to happen um, that also exert a f- an influence or a force on the trajectory of an utterance. If you think of that utterance as a thing moving through space like a tennis ball between tennis players, right? Um, I lobby, I hit a shot. It is hot in here. You receive it, I'm going to open a window, mm. and that's why you throw back at me, and then I toss it back, this exchange of shots, um, this exchange of signs, is occurring in a context where a bunch of other things are in play. You know, what are the lines that denote something? How far do you let a go, ball go You know, before you hit it back um, when you're trying to be strategic in getting a point or not? So... The, are you playing in Wimbledon versus in the in your in in your local park? Um, who's watching? All of these things are going to affect the uptake of shots between each other, and that got me to understand that genres, which are like the, the influencing, like, I'm lobbing you a shot that is influenced by a genre of shots. Like, do I want to put a backspin on this one to try to get you to the left? Do I want to make you come up to the net? These are all different genres of shots um, or in, in discourse you know what am I going to send to you a resume, a cover letter, a memo but you're not just receiving it in a way that's influenced by that genre. There's a whole series of forces that are in pay, play to affect how you interpret that genre and send it back and so for me, uptake became a site of complicating agency. Mm. That made me think that it's not genres alone. And Friedman has this nice line about how um, uh, genres, um, um, you know, condition and they try to secure an uptake, but they don't determine it. Well, that's not her line, but, you know, but they condition and they sec- try to secure. We, we always are trying to do that. And we know uh, when we use a genre, we're kind of expecting that. Ill, Ill condition and secure certain, but we don't know for sure. And there's a whole bunch of other things in play. And so for me, uptake has become an obsession for the last 10 years, and it's troubled my notion of genre. And uh, I've been still to this day trying to think through it with people like you. We've had such wonderful conversations about uptake and the mobilization of knowledge across contexts. So it's very much something I'm still working through with others. But.
1: I know that you applied sort of uptake to genre in the climate debate. There's a chapter that you write. Mm-hmm. Are there other sort of topics that you're interested in applying uptake to in, in this past 10 years? What are some things that have caught your interest? Where yeah. do we see this fascinating brain of yours going in the future?
2: <laughs> um, well, yes. So one of the ways in which... Uptake has factored into my thinking actually is about it it goes way back to my roots um in um in so in and, and um my family's kind of history in palestine i've i've um i've i've had an interest in public uh debate about israel palestine in in the u s it is such a fraught um complicated um Set of that some people just find it hard to even enter into because uh, the stakes and the consequences have become so politically charged. And so I published a couple of things on how uptake might be able to help us understand what might be going on and how to disrupt the, the usual flow of back and forth. Um, Dylan Dreyer has a really nice... F- term called disrupt take and so in that sense um what i was what i was interested in is how um what happens in that in that public debate about israel palestine is that the genres that are meant to do certain things were being denied the chance to do them um as a political attempt to silence um, uh, debate about it. So, for you know, so for example, um, um, Mearsheimer and Walt wrote a, a very famous article about the, um, the the one is from the Kennedy. Uh, school of um from harvard and another is the university of chicago i think they're like serious um uh political scholars and policy scholars and they wrote an they wrote an article about the the way that uh the israel um pro-israel lobbies um affect public discourse on israel palestine um um uh, uh uh Jimmy Carter the former president uh wrote a book and uh in which he it's a book about um you know Israel Palestine and what was interesting to me is that these works were not when these when these books and others made it into public circulation they were not read on the terms that they were written in. Uh, Those, you know, when something is written as a report, something's written as a memoir, right, you engage it on those terms. But in that case, the genre in which this was written was kind of ignored and what was being taken up was only the critique of Israel. And then through a series of uptakes, that gets translated into anti-semitism hmm. okay so what was interesting to me was what is the charge of anti-semitism which is such a serious one and with a history of such <laughs> violence i mean mm-hmm. nobody you know unless they are <laughs> anti-semitic um who is interested in having a critical debate about israel palestine wants to be called anti-semitic mm-hmm. for criticizing policies. Um, but that's the dominant uptake. No matter what you said, you know, so on the one hand, it became interesting to me that you can be a white supremacist
1: mm-hmm.
2: like David Duke, who is anti-Semitic and who is writing critiques of um, um, of, of, of Israel They're, and writing them in, in, you know, the kind of documents that are racist, uh, screeds um, there becomes no distinction between that and Jimmy Carter you know um, or these scholars Mearsheimer and Walt like, no matter the source of the, the genre or the rhetor the uptake was always going to be the same hmm. and I became very interested in w- what happens when an uptake becomes um, the thing that overrides everything else that's a lot of agency to an uptake that then drowns out. You know, should there be genre distinctions? Should there be distinctions about who is making this? What about their history? What about their record? What about work that they did? I mean, Jimmy Carter trying to negotiate a peace deal, right? It's um, so the uptake became so um, overridingly powerful that I became interested in. Um, who gets to sponsor the uptakes, and and then and then I became interested in the way that um, certain genres were permitted uh, to 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 have a longer uh, public space without being subject to that uptake. That being, this is anti-Semitic. Uh, And those, in my research, were typically works of art. Uh, Films, there's some amazing films uh, by Israeli filmmakers, by Palestinian filmmakers, by American, you know, North American filmmakers. Art installations. Uh, I was struck, while I was at the Tate Museum in London, there was a giant installation piece It was called Sabra and Shatila, which is a site of a massacre in a Palestinian camp in Lebanon. That was... um, That was... um, So so they... This is a stunning installation, this abstract art. And I... So I saw it, and I spent hours watching people watch it. Hmm. And I was struck by how long people would stay there. And I'm thinking... What allows certain uh forms of discourse a chance to be taken up in a longer way and what others are not given that chance because they are taken up as a certain thing that sins says, This is this is the end of that one. This is anti Semitism. If you engage with it, you're anti Semitic.
1: Hmm.
2: Right? But works of art we're not allowed, we're not we're not we're not um
1: subject to the same. Uh, yes.
2: And so I became interested in how do works of art maybe allow us to linger longer in the uptakes. And so I've been very interested in that as well. but just sorry, long way to answer your question that I, so I have taken that work into that um, into that area. Um, um, you know, Friedman talks about uptakes having memories, long ramif- ramified intertextual memories. And I think that uptake of certain critique as anti-Semitism has a long memory, hmm. and it's a memory that I honor because I understand the risk of what happens when anti-Semitism is not uh, checked. But how do we how do we work with that? So, you know, the agency of that memory in relationship to other genre, the genre, agency of genres. So. So that's part of the work I'm interested in. And then another way in which uptake has kind of factored into my thinking recently is in trying to think about questions of knowledge mobilization, mobility studies, uh, things you and I have talked about before, knowledge transfer. There are certain questions in the field, translingualism, this whole interest in the prefix trans, Hmm. transmodality, transfer, translation, translingualism, knowledge transfer, all these things that study how things move, I think would be enriched by spending time thinking about uptake. So that's sort of where my thinking has been more recently as well.
1: Oh, that's that's such a, I mean, that's such a sort of great way to talk about this because it's so difficult to talk about this particular topic, Israel-Palestine. And what's, what's the most scary to me is that sometimes the worst kinds of antisemitism can be sort of concealed underneath that veneer, mm-hmm. as what's coded as anti-Semitic, um, oh, what's coded as sort of, sort of, pro-Israel can sometimes be the most anti-Semitic future prophecy rhetoric, whatever that whatever's going on. That's there. right. And and there's no way as a public to sort of, I mean, this is this is a way, right? This is a way to sort of piece together, of a, a form of resistance in a lot of ways. Yes.
2: Yes, and I think that what you're pointing to there is, you know, like there are so many people who are maybe like right wing, Christian right supporters of Israel, who their end goal is not support of Israel, but Mm -hmm. it is a, it's a convenient, um, it's a convenient way to address another common enemy. Let's say, um, like, if um, you know, like, to to kind of. If you're going to go, um, if you're going to vilify Islam uh, or Muslims, and then that becomes, you know, you join, you know, you you could have a veneer of support Mm -hmm. for Israel that actually is just as anti Semitic. So I think we're, we're paying attention to uptakes, allows us to kind of see what are the translations that are unfolding here. That makes something look like it's something and not something else. So, yeah, I think that is a way of um, of learning to pay attention to the sort of the the invisible uh, motivations and transactions that might. um, Yeah, and it it does get you into this realm of intent of intent, Mm. but not just but intent not in this egocentric way of, like, what is the human intent, but, like, the political intent and the um, historical intent and all those things that are coming into play to make an uptake happen that seems okay, but it's...
1: Almost makes me go back to sort of your initial thinking about genre, where it it, it almost starts to make me feel the genres over determine things a little bit too much because one person saying something uh, is not enough to counteract the force that something like, say, the entertainment industrial complex is already enacting on mm-hmm. the situation, Right. <laughs> yes, um, but to speak a little bit of hope and to speak a little bit of change, you have been working tirelessly over the past few years to enact change in in this institution. Um, you are the chair of the English department. Tell me how that's been for you.
2: Yes, well, I should have I mean, when you asked me where my thinking on uptake has been the most, um it has been in, in this leadership role. I surprised myself at how much my scholarly my scholarly um work my training has informed my work as department chair. I did not I didn't anticipate that being the case. Um so the you know the word um the word that operates the most in my head as I am doing my work is articulation that that's an interesting it's a it's a it's a lovely term because it has these two meanings on the one hand it means to express on the other it means to conjoin and you know in physiology articulation is sort of where you're um i'm moving my arm right now and and you know it's a It's the joins that make certain expressions possible or certain movements possible. So it suggests that what can be expressed or what can be done or what can be moved depends on how it is held together. And so as chair, I've been very interested in the the way that things are held together institutionally to make certain expressions possible. And here I mean expressions of knowledge, expressions of labor, expressions of value, expressions of identity, um, all of those things. How are things held together? And in that sense, genres are also sites of articulation. They hold together things in a conventional way to make certain expressions uh, easier and other ones harder. Um, So as chair... I've, I've obsessively been thinking about where are the sites of articulation. And oftentimes, these are in between things. Um, you know, uh, I think oftentimes you have um, a way of doing things that are sequenced. And if you just follow the genres or the sequence of genres, it'll just make possible a series of articulations that result in a certain thing. Um, So as an example, um, we'll just uh, um, merit and merit review, right? So we, as most institutions, do annual merit review of faculty. And and that's where chance for faculty write an annual activity report. And that report summarizes their work for that year. And what we've found over time, you know, is that um, people will write these reports and they may not feel a certain permission to report certain things because it it may not seem to fit within what academic work is. Hmm. And so there's a lot of, you know, sort of memory of what reporting of academic work is. So it made a lot of work invisible. Uh, Or for those who would... Um, reported, they would often have to provide all kinds of rationale for why I'm putting this, you know, whether I made a documentary or I did this work with a community partner that resulted in, um, you know, uh, this mural project, you know. It's, so what we've done is we've tried to identify the spaces in between the dominant institutional documents that might intermediate and allow people permission to express other things. So we did something, uh, we created a merit heuristic. And the word heuristic comes from Eureka, so it's about discovering. Right? And so we spent three months uh, thinking about what is it that we value, what is it that we do, the, all the range of what we do. Just don't hold back. What are the things that you do that brings you joy, That that allow you to enact your values. And then we thought about what is it that we value? What do we say in our mission statement and our strategic plan that we value? And then we, we said, let's create a document that says, okay, re- scholarship can mean these things that we traditionally define as scholarship, but it can also mean all these other things. And, and so can teaching, and so can service, and so can commitments to diversity, equity, justice. So we created this document, we we spent months on it, and we voted on it, and now every time we send out the request for activity reports, we say, keep this in mind. And it's done a marvelous job of allowing people to articulate the full range of their work and their identities and their values. And the activity reports are um, much more expansive and inclusive and... And the other part of it is that these documents, which are read every year by all the faculty, are now also pedagogical. They're training us to expand our notion of what our work is. And now when we we go up for, when we put somebody up for promotion, uh, it's no longer a surprise that they've been talking about this work in this way for this long, that this community partnership project is scholarship to them. They've been telling us for four years and if we do not know how to make that legible to us, that's our problem now. Um, we've, we've, we've allowed that story to be told in that way because we value it that way, and now we have to be accountable to that. So as chair, I've been thinking of all about our uptakes and where do we create, where do we disrupt the uptakes to allow different uptakes uh, to be possible. We've done that with hiring. Um which I, I can I can talk more if you'd like about about that because in- you know hiring is one of the places where institutions can really become conservative mm-hmm. and um and just revert back to how they've done things in the past and so when we would do hiring, we would often just ask groups of faculty to write a hiring proposal, and they would be the you know constituencies. That already existed. Who thought this, we need X? We need X because we do X, and that's how we've done things before. And um, but we, you know, we revise our major. We've created new ways of imagining our field. And so, something as simple as saying, "Well, we don't, We're not asking for hiring proposals. We're asking for hiring pre-proposals, and they can be anything. Just and so we got." all kinds of stuff, and then we um, and uh, we, we, we had uh, a retreat, and we took all those in pre-proposals. We said, can we put them together in new combinations? And, and then we worked to kind of create about 16 uh, combinations of things. I said, now go and work on proposals together and force people who wouldn't normally work together to have to think about how do I articulate settler colonialism with early modern drama, hmm. you know? And uh, it was messy. <laughs> it at times scared the heck out of me. I thought, what am I doing? I am incompetent. People were very nervous. Like, we're, we're, this is a mess. And it was. Disrupting uptakes is messy, The reason we like to just move in the directions that uptakes that are kind of standardized do is because it's just we know them. We know where they lead. We know how to execute them. Um, But we stuck in there and it took, you know, um, I give credit because I think I'm a very deeply processed person because, but process for me is pedagogy, process is engaging in uptake thinking, but it requires trust. It requires willingness to make adjustments when things are not working, you know, well. Um, and um, so we, we, we hung in there. We did it. And we developed a hiring plan. There were people who were very skeptical that this was incoherent. It wouldn't lead anything. Well, we've hired 12 faculty the last four years hmm. because that thinking was so refreshing to our college. Our, they wanted us to just not think about reproducing um, what exists, and we became an example. Um, it's been it's been wonderful, right? And then, but of course, once you hire people in these ways that we haven't hired in the past, then we need to really be careful about how do we evaluate them. It is it would be deeply unethical to hire people who work within different epistemological frameworks, and then assess them within traditional frameworks once they're here. So we've been working about thinking about how do we change our systems of valuation to match our values. And that's what we've been doing. So Anyway, this is what I spend all my time doing, is thinking about how do we disrupt uh, the uptakes, the institutional uptakes, to make possible things that allow people to feel a full sense of belonging here.
1: In addition to that, I mean, I I love the fact that you brought up sort of trust, a willingness to, to... sort of pay attention even though while you think you, you're confused and you're somewhat lost mm-hmm. in a lot of ways um, I would love for you to connect this conversation to sort of your philosophy of working with students and this is this is one of the great remarkable things about you is that I've not been in your office ever when you haven't talked about a previous student that you've worked mm-hmm. with there's it's it's almost like there are all of these tabs that are open in your head where you're working with students and you're really able to connect. Okay, like say, Joe Wilson said this before. So there's there's, there's something here that you're thinking about. I would love to hear more about your philosophy of of working with students because in addition to disrupting uptake, you've also been situating and making possible lots of uptakes.
2: Well, part of it is that when you create space for other uptakes to come, then you can make connections. Um, I mean, I just, I am instinctively naturally um resistant to the idea of no I think you know like discouraging something before you understand what it could be is difficult i i I resisted deeply um I don't know what something's gonna be it may be a bad idea, but I cannot predict now because when things follow other things, right? where you may end up is beyond what you can imagine right now. And to deny the chance for things to accumulate and work out is just very, very limiting to me. And and so I just resist that by nature. And so, um, but in the case of, um, I love that image of the tabs open uh, because it's true. I have a lot of tabs open in my brain all the time. Every time someone gives me an idea, it's there. And I don't know what will happen to it. It could be four years later, when the other piece comes in and you say, ah, there's a connection here. Now, before I get to that question, right? How can somebody keep a lot of tabs open? I'm not an extraordinary person. Um, I don't have more mental capacity than anybody else. Um, But what I do have is, and this is the gift from my mother, who had modeled for me an ability to engage in what I've come to learn is called um, non-attachment. And people meditate and do yoga to get to that state where I by nature I don't process things through an ego and the idea of non-attachment is not disattachment it's the opposite it is to be it is to allow you to be connected to everything around you without doing thing it through your own, ego processing of like, how dare this person say that? Um, I just don't process things that way. It's just it's a way of being connected to everything around you without personally taking it personally. That could be bad or good, you know, but I just I, I don't. so so there's a lot of emotional labor, that I think gets used up when you're processing it through your own ego, and instead it frees up emotional labor uh, of being connected to other things on their terms. So I can keep tabs open because I don't have a an ego relationship to it that is making me angry. You know, my wife and I are always talking about this. Uh, she goes you should get angry but I just like it's not that I don't notice something being sh- shitty I it's like and if somebody says something horrible racist um, sexist I will engage with them and I will tell them this is this is racist this is sexist this is unacceptable um, but I don't uh, and if they say mean things to me I'm like okay you know, But I am not going to feel angry. I'm just going to engage in it vehemently, right? So I think I live in a state of mind that doesn't um, make me have to sort of process these things and it frees up mental space to just have this deep relationality to things. Um, and so... So, yeah, I mean, all of us are always feeling relationships and everything, but a lot of it is just being processed through our feelings of, um, uh, it's not about not fe- having feeling. I've, it's the feelings of connection is wonderful feelings, but it's just not through my own ego. I, mm. I'm not, it's hard to explain. I just sort of feel like I'm just a piece of something that is all around, and I'm just, you know. So, that's how I can keep a lot of tabs open. Um, and... Um, I don't have extra space in my brain. The way I liken it to is like if you think about the computer RAM, because you mentioned tabs, so we'll (laughs) go with that. You know, depending on your computer, it has uh, it has the hard drive, it has memory, and it has RAM. And RAM is the processing. You know, RAM is what allows you to keep as many tabs open without the computer slowing down. Okay, so it's like. What are you using your brain power? Like how much RAM do you have, and where do you want to keep? It? I want to keep. I want to keep my RAM uh, freed up for these connections, um, because I think it's just a yeah. Uh, so
1: I I can't wait for this book to be out, Denise. This is <laughs> this is your next project. I mean, and and this this. So you said a little bit that initially when you were applying to jobs, you almost thought that you were going to sort of have a more, more of a teaching position than a research mm-hmm. position. And that somewhat comes through. I mean, I've always thought, thought of you as a person that you can go into niece's office and you can kind of talk about anything. I mean, you're definitely connected to the things that we're talking about and the things that are on the agenda. But you can start almost anywhere, and that's, that's, that's like, where do you get? I mean, I, I guess you've explained a little bit that that's where you get that sense of generosity there.
2: Well, yeah. So go back to the question of, and just I'm going to say how much um, it means to me that uh, you're saying these things about the experience you have when you come and talk to me. That um, um, it's a great joy when you feel like the things you aspire to do um, can sometimes be happening. So, Thank you. Um, it's obviously reciprocal, but where does that come from? So, so the keeping tabs open is part of it. But I guess I would say I grew up in a home and in a community and a culture where hospitality is the core value, right? Um, um, you know, my mother. Um, until the day she died would had she has three she had two fridges and a deep freezer in her house because she had meals prepared for all the unexpected guests who would come i was i grew up in a community like that lebanese palestinian diaspora community almost all my parents childhood friends eventually moved within a 50 mile radius and they come into each other's homes unannounced. My dad's friend would come home and say, what's for dinner? And my mom had to be ready to scale up, right? So, in fact, one of the most amazing things is that we were still eating my mother's food a year after she died. Because it had been frozen, and in fact, the last couple of uh, kibbe balls we couldn't eat them, so we've so we frozen those, and like that's not gonna be forever. But, but she had made enough food to feed people for a year after she had died. And that is sort of what I understood is, uh, what it means to be hospitable, is that you make your home open to people, and when guests are there, they're family. And part of that hospitality is that when you encounter somebody's idea, you have to find a way to be a guest in it, um, or how do you how do you make it how do you make space room for it in your home for somebody's idea? And if it's an idea that's difficult to grasp, um, my initial reaction when something is difficult is not to push it away. I think a lot of people' defense mechanism is I don't understand this, so therefore something's wrong with this idea. Come back to me when it's clearer. You know, I. I deeply resist the idea that when something is hard to grasp or difficult, the problem is with it. Um, That's an excuse to cover up and maybe reproduce dominant thinking, is when something's difficult for me to grasp, my first instinct is to say, how do I need to be better to understand it? And like somebody's given me a gift. Something that's difficult to grasp is a gift somebody gives you to try to fork it through. Now, it might be because it's difficult to grasp because it's an abhorrent idea, and I'm going to reject it. But that's not going to be my first reaction. I'd rather risk dwelling in an idea that I may not want to spend a lot of time with than not accepting ideas. So so for me, it's really about how do you inhabit somebody's ideas when they're new to you? And... Over time, what I found is it leads to magical things when you spend time with somebody's ideas rather than trying to, you know, like I think what could what often happens is somebody comes in with an idea and then the other person, to, in order to understand it, they process it through their own ideas and then they try to make it familiar. And that can be very productive as well, but I, 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 I just... I'm more interested in, okay, Hamza, you have, you're thinking, like, you know, you come in often and you'll say, (laughs) oh, you know, like you say, I'm thinking about this and this and this. What was the word you used for it last time? Um, Unhinged. Unhinged. (laughs) Yes, unhinged, yes. And I'm like, no, uh, I am excited because you've now given me something that for the next couple of years, I'm going to work to see how they are hinged. Um, uh, I don't think of them as unhinged. I think, okay, this is just going to be a really. It's going to take work for me to find out how they're hinged. You know, hinges are or uptake. We talked about articulation is a hinge. You know, but if the only the only things that make sense to me is when they're hinged together in certain in the using the existing hinges that I have. Like I'm going to take your window pane and this part of it and this part and put them together so they can only open using the hinge I have, I'm not interested in that. I want to know, I want to take your beautiful mind and I want to spend time with it and figure out how the things that are going to get hinged together for you are going to be like. And I love going on that journey with people. Uh, um, that's a really deep value to me as a mentor because then I will learn so much. Like imagine what I, have when I tell you all the stories about previous students, mm-hmm. It's not because I remember them, it's because they transform my thinking and they've put new connections in my brain that I didn't know before. So.
1: A key word while you were talking, uh, and what I was thinking about was this was this word time, right? There's so much. Sort of impetus in the field about rethinking time, right? So I'm thinking about how disability studies talks about crip time, decolonial theory talks about sort of decolonial time, and and sort of rupturing this modernist like linear time. That how do you get this sense of this expansive time that you that you then have to invest in that person's idea, right? Because it, it I I imagine that it must also take something from you, your time.
2: Yes, I mean this is where. I think our institutions are not designed as you're saying to allow for that kind of um inhabitation and um that's hard I will admit I I I you know it comes at a cost of time with other things but I feel that I am in a I am in a kind of um Um, a place in my career where I can give time to these things, like the chair work, for example, right? The chair work um, does not require as much time as I've given it. But I made the decision when I chose, when I agreed to do it, that I wanted to give it that kind of time, which meant I was going to take away time from other things. I am in a place in my career where I can make these choices. So um, my own research has slowed while I've been chair. Um, So part of it is you do have to give up some time. The other part of it is I give probably too much time uh, at the cost of other things. Um, But I also don't think of it necessarily as... um, costing time because I get so much in exchange for it um, but you're right it's it's a um, I'm regretting I left my I was charging my phone in my office and I when I left I didn't bring it with me but I would have read a poem uh, by Naomi Shihab Nye um, called the red brocade it's very short but if, if, you know because I think it has an answer to your question about time. And rather than answer it, I want that poem to answer it. The Red Brocade. It should pull up Naomi Shihab.
1: I'm just looking this up. <clears throat> and now we will have a poem read by Anise. The beauty of technology,
2: okay. <clears throat> This is the the Red Brocade by Naomi Shihabnai, who is um, a Palestinian-American poet. Here is a poem. The Arabs used to say, "When a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where he's headed. That way, He'll have strength enough to answer. Or, by then, you'll be such good friends, you don't care. Let's go back to that. Rice? Pine nuts? Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone put on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. The line that gets me here is, no, I was not busy when you came. Hmm. Now, Yes, you were busy. You know, we're always busy. But the world makes makes it so that we can just it's just that that's the armor we use. I'm busy. I can't do that. I refuse to be claimed by busyness. So I'm not I'm not lauding this because I think institutions are so designed to extract and, 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 and deplete us but at the same time I refuse to let that claiming of my time and busyness mean that I will not be ready to meet a guest and inhabit so I'd love that you know I know I'm not busy uh, I'm not going to say
1: that. Thank you, Anise. That's a piece of inspiration that I hope to carry forward into my own life, where I'm definitely busy, but <laughs> but definitely. I mean, it's 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 a way of thinking, right, that interrupts that time. Because also, if you follow along, where where that time wants to take you to, that's that's the absence of relationality. That's the absence of human communication and yeah, um,
2: so beautifully said. And that takes us all back to uptake, you know, because uptake wants to claim a time for how things will move. And, um, yeah. Yeah.
1: I would love to, um, as a parting gift, I'd love to hear a piece of advice or something you would say <clears throat> to yourself if you were a graduate student right now. <laughs>
2: um, hmm. I would... I would say to myself, uh, what I tried to tell myself even then, and that is, look for the things that, remember the things that were important to you, that made a difference to you, and then try to do them yourself. A lot of what I say about mentoring, uh, I learned from my own mentors. I mean, I will do a shout-out to... Professor Amy Devitt, who was my mentor, and that, you know, um, and just a sort of, the things that were helpful to you, remember them, and then try to do them, um, and the things that you didn't have that you needed, um, keep working to make them happen. Institutions are not... Um, um, forever they you know they change and um the worst thing is the worst thing for me is when certain things that were done to you that were not good that were harmful that some people then feel like they need to inflict them on others in order to um um I don't know it's you know in order to kind of make it seem well I experienced this so others should as well um, just so, a lot of things that I learned in graduate school uh, about how institutions work or how mentoring works that maybe are not ideal, um, remember why they weren't and work hard to uh, change them when you are in positions where you can. Because as a graduate student, you can't do as much. But then one day you're going to become your old self, me. <laughs> you know, the Anise in graduate school couldn't do the things I can do now. Here I am as chair. And I don't have that much authority, um, but there are things you can do when you are at different stages of your career as long as you keep remembering the things that brought you joy and the things that brought you harm and trying to do something about them.
1: Thank you so much, Anise. It's been a joy talking to you. I will move into this day forward with this post Anise energy that I always get after talking to you. It's uh, been an absolute joy
2: for me too I unexpected I didn't imagine we'd go here but you have such a um, generosity of questions that kind of follow the previous uh answers that allowed for this really it was an example of how how the uptakes uh, took us in different directions so it's been real a pleasure to to be with you here thank you thank you so much
0: I hope you enjoyed Hamza Ahmad's interview with Anis Bawarshi. Hamza did an outstanding job as the 2022-2023 TBR podcast fellow. He was professional, flexible, and timely in everything he did for the podcast. Also, it appears the fellows are better at scheduling higher profile guests than I am, which is actually quite cool because it demonstrates that these opportunities are valuable. That the podcast fellowship is working. Please visit our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and click on the 2023 TBR podcast fundraiser icon to give to our campaign. Five dollars, twenty five dollars, one hundred dollars, any amount would be helpful. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Red to find a link to our campaign pinned to our page. Additionally, you can find information about our fundraising campaign on our Facebook page and our TikTok page, which you can follow at The Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'll be back next week with the final episode of Season 8 of The Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kickapoo, and Tawakoni peoples. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Stepha Helix, and Sky Jordan.